Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 12? This is part five of our study of spiritual gifts, and we will move away from it a bit after today. We will be looking at verses 8 through 11, but primarily the matter of speaking in tongues. Remember now, in an effort to honor the Holy Spirit, who has been so dishonored by some of the, especially the charismatic and Pentecostal movements out there today, we want to very carefully understand what the Word of God has to say regarding spiritual gifts. It's a very important subject because so many people are naive, they're ignorant, and they get caught up in these movements. And unfortunately, even as the Lord promised would happen, so many churches today fail to preach the word. They fail to teach their people these things. And so what happens is churches lack discernment and they continue to attract non-believers. Jesus warned that most who call themselves Christians will never enter the kingdom in Matthew 7. And so what you have today are many churches that have been abandoned to an island of spiritual infancy because they've never been taught anything. And as a result, you have undiscerning and dead apostate churches view the unbridled emotionalism and the private gibberish and the unbiblical mysticism that's characteristic of the charismatic movement, and they see those things along with the allure of material wealth and, and, and physical healing and temporal happiness and so forth. They see all of, this thing, all of these things and they embrace them. And especially since 87% of Pentecostals live in poverty around the world, they find these heresies very appealing. And only truth can expose a counterfeit. Now, today, as I say, we're going to examine what shouldn't be but is a very controversial issue, and that is the gift of tongues. Now, we're going to examine this in much greater detail when we come to chapter 14 because that's what Paul does in that chapter in particular. Uh, He will explain what it is and what it isn't. And today I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of that I'm also going to take you into some of the history of this particular issue. But remember now, here in this text, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 11, Paul is merely mentioning the issue of speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues as part of a representative sampling of spiritual gifts. Now, I want you to remember the context here. It's always very important. The new Gentile and Jewish believers in the church, new converts to Christianity, did not have the New Testament canon like we do. So they depended heavily upon the oral teachings of the apostles and other prophets, others that were associated with them, as well as the epistles that were written and read to them. Moreover, the Gentiles brought with them into the church their religious and cultural baggage. And don't we all do the same thing? And that especially included 
their involvement in the pagan mystery religions that I went into several expositions back in great detail. You remember that included the frenzied hyper-emotionalism of ecstasia, as well as the divination and the revelatory dreams and visions of enthusiasmos. So they, they were used to all of that kind of stuff, and they bring it into the church. Moreover, some of the people in the church with, were dissatisfied with their spiritual gifts, and they envied those that had gifts that were a little more flamboyant, and so they wanted what they had. They wanted to be highly favored. Remember, Paul speaks about the people as being puffed up. They wanted to show off. So they sought the showy gifts, especially a phony version of speaking in tongues, literally speaking in languages. And that began to dominate the worship services. Moreover, confusion arose because at times, as we're going to see, multiple people wanted to express their gift at the same time. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue in a worship service if that were to happen? And, of course, people are wanting to kind of outperform one another. That's how it works. And then they had the problem of of self-promoting women in particular, ruled by their emotions. They were out of control. In 1 Corinthians 14, 33 and following, Paul says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. And then in verse 40, he says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And then you add to all of this, you've got new imposters and false teachers that are getting on the Christian bandwagon, and they're bringing in all of their crazy stuff that they're coming up with. And of course, anybody that has ever been around a church knows that a church is, is a place that attracts self-promoting weirdos and phonies, people that are looking for a stage, a place to perform. So the church at Corinth was no different. Now, the people remember now, they had no idea how to manage all of their affairs. They didn't have the New Testament canon. They didn't know really how to conduct worship services. They didn't know how to deal with with these gifts that were given and the phony stuff they saw going on, or at least they thought it was phony. So where did they turn? Well, they had two places to turn to. Number one, the apostles. And that's what we see, for example, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. These are corrective epistles that the apostle is writing to help the people understand how to deal with things. And the other place they turned to were other believers in the church that had been gifted by the Spirit of God. So in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul confronts the counterfeit manifestations of these gifts in order to help the people to distinguish between the true works of the Spirit versus the false works of the flesh, the phony counterfeits of the mystery religions and of the flesh that people would just naturally come up with. So that's, once again, the background. So let's return to this representative sampling of spiritual gifts. And again, this is, what, the fifth part of this series, and this is the last time I will read this section to you. You probably have it memorized by now, but it's important to get the flow. So he begins in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. 
to another faith by the same spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another, and here's where we will be today, various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, I've given you a little outline this morning. It's just a fourfold outline. We're going to look at the nature of the gift of tongues, the purpose of the gift of tongues, the duration of the gift of tongues, and finally, I want to give you a historical perspective of the perversion of the gift of tongues. Now, bear in mind that in the early church, as in many places we see around the world today, this gift was disproportionately exalted and seriously abused. That's what was going on in Corinth, and that's what we see in many places today. So first of all, let's look at the nature of the gift of tongues. Notice that he says, to another, various kinds of tongues. It is tongues is glossa in the original language. And the Greek word for kinds, you see kinds of tongues. The Greek word for kinds is genos. We would, the transliteration would be G-E-N-O-S, from which we derive the English word genus, G-E-N-U-S. And genus refers to a family or a group of something or a race or a nation. For example, linguists, and this is the context here, linguists often refer to language in terms of being in families or in groups, language families, language groups. And that's Paul's emphasis here. So he says there are various kinds of tongues, of languages. There's various family groups of languages. So what we see in this passage and other passage, if you want a definition of tongues, it is the miraculous ability to speak in unlearned foreign languages for the sake of proclaiming the word of God and authenticating both the message and the messenger. There are various families of languages in the world. If any of you have studied languages, you will quickly see that. And this gift enabled believers to speak in a variety of these languages. But when used in the early church, it also had to be translated so that other people who were listening could know what was being said. That makes sense. In chapter 14, verse 27, Paul says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn. In other words, let's don't all do it at the same time. And he says, and let someone interpret. Now, this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost helps us see when tongues really first came into being. It's recorded in Acts 2. And there you have a clear description of this gift in action. In fact, it is the only description of the true gift of tongues found anywhere in Scripture. And there we have the account, you'll recall, of 122 followers of Christ who were assembled in the upper room and Jews from all over the world had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. 
including many pilgrims who had grown up speaking languages other than Aramaic, which most of them spoke. And in Acts 2, verse 4, we read this. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, that tongues is a reference to authentic languages is not only confirmed by Luke's use of the Greek word tongues, glossa, which refers to human languages, but also to his later use of the word dialect. We get our word dialect from that in verses 6 and 7, as well as his inclusion of a list of the languages that were spoken from at least 16 different regions. I want to read this to you. Beginning in verse 5 of Acts 2, he goes on to say, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In our vernacular, it would be uneducated rednecks from Cheatham County. That's the idea. That's what they're saying. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And then they give this, this list of, of, he gives a list of family groups of languages. Um, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, can you imagine what an amazing scene that would have been? Absolutely astounding. But now bear in mind, there were also native Judeans in the crowd who did not speak these language, and therefore they're hearing all of this, and they're clueless. It's like, what are all these people saying and they needed to know, and some of them responded with cynicism as well as just mockery. Down in verse 12 it says, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. You guys got to be drunk. What's going on here? So this was a, a supernatural gift of foreign languages. And as we will see in chapter 14... It had been counterfeited with nonsensical gibberish that could not be translated. By the way, just as a footnote, even a cursory examination of the biblical passages that describe this gift in Mark, in Acts, and 1 Corinthians, when you look at these passages, you will see very quickly that the modern charismatic, of, modern charismatic version of tongues is just an elaborate hoax. It bears no resemblance whatsoever to the biblical definition of tongues. So we see, first of all, the nature of the gift of tongues. Secondly, let's look at the purpose of the gift of tongues. And it is threefold. First of all, it was a sign to unbelievers. 
In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Then he tells them why. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul says, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, throughout the New Testament, the word sign, simeon in the original language, speaks of a miraculous event with deeper spiritual and even symbolic significance. In fact, it is often used in association with wonders and miracles, signs, miracles, and wonders. And again, what an amazing thing this would have been to hear the gospel in your own language when you're in with a bunch of other people who speak different languages. And then those listening who did not speak that particular language in particular could hear it translated into their language. I've been in various places around the world where I've spoken in, in, in English I was going to say spoken in tongues, but I've spoken English, right? And I have translators. And I remember, for example, in Israel speaking, and, and they had everybody. It was in a big outdoor area about, this, about the size of our auditorium. And there, it was an outdoor thing down in southern Israel in a lot. And there were, I, I believe there were eight different people groups with different languages that had assembled and they had uh, the, the Jews from Ukraine over here, and they had the South American Jews here. These were all people who had come to faith in Christ, but they were from all over, all over the world. And, and then they had the little group of English people somewhere in the middle, and I forget all the different languages. But every time I would say something, I would have to pause, and you would hear a cacophony of other languages, eight translators, you know, they're speaking their language so that they could understand what I said. Now, that was similar to the gift of tongues, only it wasn't a supernatural ability. I mean, they were just translating what they knew was there, and I wasn't able to speak in those languages. All I know is English, and I'm not real good at that. But that's a, a little sample of what that's like. Now, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, remember in Acts 2, verses 22 and following, remember there he described... The Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene, as, as the Jewish Messiah. And he talked about how that this man was confirmed by means of miracles and wonders and signs that he did in their midst. There we read, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Now, obviously, that sign would include the speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And he says, which God performed through him in your midst. And as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So there's an example of how the tongues even would be used as a sign. We see it as well in Acts 14, verse 3. And there, Luke uses the term signs in conjunction with the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and Iconium. It was their first missionary journey. 
And there we read, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And that would have included the gift of tongues. In Mark 16, verse 17, as well as verse 20, we read, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons They will speak with new tongues. It goes on in verse 20 to say, And they went out and preached everywhere while the the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. We know as well that later on in 1 Corinthians 14, the middle of verse 18, Paul informs the Corinthians there that he had spoken with tongues to a far greater degree than any of them. To be sure, as an apostle to the Gentiles, he had to interface with all of these different language groups. So the Spirit of God gave him that supernatural ability to speak in their language, to speak fluently in whatever local populace that he was in. So this special gift of languages was a sign to unbelievers that the message being delivered in their language, was indeed inspired from God himself. But secondly, it was also a sign of judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And a lot of people have never heard this before, but it's so crucial that you understand it, and the scripture's so clear. Back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, we see that in that text, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. Again, he says, in the law, it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So what's fascinating here is that Paul links the gift of tongues to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which predicted that judgment would come at the hands of foreigners. And in its Old Testament fulfillment... It had to do with the Babylonian captivity that would soon come upon them. But in the New Testament, the miraculous gift of foreign languages is the application of the same principle. In other words, this gift was a similar sign of God turning away from Israel for a time because of the rejection of Christ. Just as he turned away from Israel in the time of their Babylonian captivity because of their idolatry. So this gift of tongues not only demonstrated that a transition was taking place from the old covenant to the new covenant, but it would also appear to the Jewish people as a sign of judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And then finally, number three, the purpose of tongues is for the edification of believers. Now, think about this. Tongues is mentioned alongside with the gift of prophecy and knowledge. We see this, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 8 through 11. I, I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11. And we can safely assume that it therefore served as a confirmatory gift, if you will, of those two revelatory gifts, the gift of prophecy and knowledge. And, of course, God gave this to that infant body, the body of Christ, at such a time 
when they needed this information, and he gave it to them as a, as a gift to help them during this transition period, and ultimately it came to an end at the, at the end of the apostolic era. Since 1 Corinthians 14.2 says that tongue speakers spoke mysteries, very interesting statement, referring to new revelation previously unrevealed until God chose to disclose it through his chosen representative. Because of this, the gift of tongues apparently contained important information, even revelatory content that was authoritative and required the message to be rightly spoken and rightly interpreted and shared with everyone. So once again, that's why the gift of tongues and the interpretation of these languages were a counterpart to the gift of prophecy. And we see this, for example, in Acts 19 and verse 6. In 1 Corinthians 12, in verses 2 through 10, it's made clear that, that all of these gifts were given by the Holy Spirit. Bear that in mind. For the building up of others in the body of Christ. Now catch this. These are not gifts that a person goes out and learns. These are not gifts that a person goes out and acquires or is even to seek. They are all given to each individual according to the sovereign purposes of God through the power of the Spirit. First Corinthians, or I mean, I'm sorry, First Peter 4 and verse 10, Peter says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, folks, this flies in the face of the ridiculous practice of seeking some kind of second blessing or being slain in the spirit so that all believers can somehow have this gift. Many people in the charismatic movement believe this, that once you have been spirit-filled, you will be able to begin to speak in this nonsensical gibberish. And you've seen people, you know, fall backwards on the floor and shake and, and laugh uncontrollably. And, and then they begin babbling incoherent syllables. You know, you have to ask, how in the world is that evidence of being spirit-filled? One large charismatic church in our area that I'm familiar with um, asks its new members if they speak in tongues in their little form that you fill out. And if the answer is no, the next question is, well, would you like to learn how? And they offer a class where you can go and learn how to speak gibberish. I've talked with people who have come out of that. You know, this reminds me of... What Jesus said, just parenthetically, and remember in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Now, I know some of you are going to ask, how can people be so gullible as to fall for this? Well, I've asked that question to people who are a part of these systems, and I've, I've dealt with many over the years. And for some, they admitted that it was for self-promotion, a way of making yourself feel spiritually superior. 
Others, it was for spiritual gratifications, or I should say self-gratification. It makes them feel spiritual. They're kind of empty on the inside, and they're, they're looking for some joy and some assurance and some power, and, and this seems to be a way of satisfying that. One person said, quote, it gives me a spiritual high and makes me feel close to God. Other people are just are easily swayed. They yield to the power of suggestion and, and peer pressure. I've talked with many people who have described their first experience speaking in tongues where others have huddled around them, usually in the front of the church, and, and people say, go on, you can do it. You know, pray for the Spirit to fall on you and, and feel the Spirit. Let Him take over. Just let yourself go. Don't think about it. Just start making sounds. And, and, and then once they start saying a little, they're making up stuff, then, oh, look, you know, everybody's all excited and there's tears of joy and shouts of hallelujah and, and suddenly unimpressive little Thurlow is the hero of the church. Suddenly, Wilma the Wallflower is the new Beth Moore. You know, I mean, that's how this type of stuff works. And, of course, this kind of unbridled emotionalism and appeals to emotional people people that are ruled by the flesh rather than the spirit. And many folks just get caught up in the current of a crowd. You've seen this before. Naive, ignorant people, they get swept up in some frenzied mob. Beloved, never underestimate the deceptive power of the human heart. As Jeremiah tells us, it is deceitful and it is desperately wicked. And in other passages we read how the human heart is is gullible beyond imagination. I mean, just look at our political climate. We have politicians saying things that are demonstrably false, things that are utterly absurd, and people are thrilled to follow them. It's the same type of thing. And I might also add, never overestimate the spiritual maturity and discernment of the average Christian. I hope this comes across right. I, I want to say it in all love, but folks, many people in churches today are just Christian in name only. And the things of the Spirit are foolishness to them. And they, and they basically have the discernment of a dung beetle. They have no understanding of much of what the Word of God says. And so they fall for these things. And far too often, people mistake gullibility for faith. And they mistake unbridled emotionalism and, and, and frenzied babbling, babbling as if it's a work of the Spirit. And this was precisely the issue that was going on in Corinth. And of course, none of that edifies believers. None of it builds up believers or points people to Christ. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, Greater is one who prophesies, which literally means preaches or proclaims the word, than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now, once again, the people in Corinth were using the gift of languages to draw attention to themselves, to make themselves feel superior. And earlier in that same letter, Paul exhorted them saying in chapter 10, verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. And Paul described these phony tongue speakers as a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. 
in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. And then in verse 5, he explained how love, quote, does not seek its own. Well, sadly, that was what was happening in that day. So we've seen the nature and the purpose of tongues. What about the duration of the gift of tongues? Now, remember, some of the spirit-empowered gifts were temporary. I think, you, do you still have that on the back of the bulletin? Okay, you kind of get a sense of that. Um, given to believers in the early stages of, of the church to authenticate the message and the messengers of the new covenant gospel. And then once the apostolic age was over at the completion of the New Testament canon, we see that, that these gifts, some of them cease to exist. Others remain intact to this day to put the glory of Christ on display and ensure that the body of Christ functions as it is supposed to. But, dear friends, the evidence of the biblical record and church history leads us to believe that the gift of tongues is no longer in operation today. Let me give you one text. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 8, it singles out the gift of tongues And it says, they will cease. Uh, They will cease. Pao in the original language. And it means to cease permanently. And and by the way, just technically, the verb is in the middle voice in, in Greek, which means that the subject will act on itself, or in other words, on its own behalf. And so literally what Paul is saying is tongues will cease by themselves. Or you might put it this way, they they will peter out on their own. That's the idea. And it's interesting that other gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that had a particular fascination with the with the Corinthians, he says in, in back to the same text in chapter 13, verse 8, they will be done away. They will be done away. We see this in the eternal state. That will happen. But tongues are different. They are singled out by themselves, that they are going to cease on their own. Now, the question is, well, when did this happen? How do we know for sure? Well, for one thing, as we're going to see, if they were in effect today, you would see them manifested. But we don't. The last time tongues are mentioned is in Acts 19, verse 6. And what's interesting, although the apostolic ministries continued, tongues vanished from the biblical record. And the fact, that fact alone tells us that tongues are not inextricably connected to salvation and that we are not to somehow seek some special spirit baptism so that we can speak in tongues. And the final mention of the gift in the Bible is the several references to it in 1 Corinthians 14. And by the way, that was about a dozen years um, before the close of the book of Acts. So the Bible itself suggests that tongues ceased within the era of the apostles. And given the fact that Paul described the gifts of tongues as a sign of judgment, God's judgment upon unbelieving Israel to show how God was chastening them for their unbelief and how he was turning away from them because of their unbelief in the Messiah. It's obvious that the primary purpose of tongues was, as verse 22 of chapter 14 says, for a sign to those who believe, or not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. 
So again, in summary, there, there is no evidence whatsoever that the gift of tongues operating in church, operated in church history after the era of the apostles. Now, certain phenomena today that are called tongues, the gift of tongues, do exist, but those phenomena do not fit the biblical definition of the gift. So once again, when we examine the biblical record, when we take into consideration the historical narratives here, the exegesis of, of these passages, and the, uh, the utter lack of, of reference to this gift being in operation after the apostolic era, we can safely conclude that this gift is no longer necessary, it, is, it no longer exists, and I would also submit to you that this proves that the modern charismatic Pentecostal versions of tongues is nothing more than an elaborate hoax, a counterfeit that makes a mockery of the Holy Spirit and the very nature and purpose of the original gift. But as we've learned, like some in the first century church in Corinth, there are many in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement that misunderstand and misuse this gift. And I know there's a number of you and a number of our listeners who have come out of those particular movements. And the result of all of this has been nothing short of catastrophic and all of the doctrinal aberrations and the outright heresies that come out of this. And, of course, all of that then breeds ungodliness and so forth. But this should be no surprise given the historical roots of these movements. And that's what I want to deal with for a few minutes in closing this morning. So this is point number four of my little outline, the historical perversion of the gift of tongues. It was on a New Year's Eve in a prayer service in 1901 when a group of Bible school students in Kansas came together to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit that occurred at Pentecost. They thought that it could somehow be reproduced, that the Spirit would come upon them, and that it, that would be validated by the speaking of tongues. And their teacher was a Methodist holiness minister by the name of Charles Fox Parham. And he had encouraged them along these lines. And so this man and these dear students, deceived by false doctrine, but animated by the power of suggestion, decided to pursue this. And one of the students, a young woman named Agnes Osman, asked her teacher, Charles Parham, to lay hands on her and pray that she would receive the Spirit. Well, reportedly what happened next really sparked the entire charismatic Pentecostal movement. It set the whole world ablaze with these false teachings. Charles Parham later recounted what happened. I'll quote him. I laid my hands upon her and prayed. I had scarcely completed three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon her. A halo seemed to surround her head and face, and she began speaking the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. When she tried to write in English to tell us of her experience, she wrote in Chinese. One historian states, quote, Osmond's experience would soon be shared by both her teacher and her fellow students. 
During the series of revival meetings that followed, more than 20 different languages were reportedly spoken through the Spirit's supernatural power, including Russian, Japanese, Bulgarian, French, Bohemian, Norwegian, Hungarian, Italian, and Spanish. Charles Parham himself claimed to speak in Swedish as well as other languages. The writer goes on to say, Charles Parham uh, named his new movement the, quote, apostolic faith movement, and he claimed his experiences constituted a new Pentecost. Well, as you can imagine, soon after that, all of those things were proven to be a hoax, nothing more than the product of over active imaginations, unbridled emotionalism, outright deception. And the so-called gift that they experienced was nothing more than nonsensical gibberish, the very type of thing that Paul is condemning here in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But the fire had been lit, and an inferno of deception very quickly began to gain momentum in the ranks of the naive and the ignorant. And today it still burns out of control, raging all around the world. There's now an estimated 500 million Pentecostals in the world and growing. Well, eventually the claims of Agnes Osman and other Pentecostals were proven false, but Parham really capitalized on what had happened on his newfound fame, and he began holding um, healing and revival meetings in Kansas and in other parts of the Midwest. But his reputation was soon besmirched and tarnished when five months after holding meetings in Zion, Illinois, this was in 1906, five of his followers in that city beat a disabled woman to death in an attempt to drive the demon of rheumatism from her. This is the type of stuff that that you see. And there are literally thousands of illustrations of this type of insanity. And then a young girl in Kansas died because her parents refused medical treatment and instead sought healing through Parham's ministry. By the way, as a footnote, one of his followers was a 35-year-old African-American. Maybe you've heard of him, William J. Seymour. Uh, He was the one that started his own movement, his own version, called the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. That was in 1906. By the way, the behavior of his meetings and all was so wild that even Parham didn't want anything to do with it. So they separated company. Well, by July of 1907, Parham was arrested at a hotel in San Antonio, Texas, on charges of sodomy. And while he claimed to be innocent, his opponents alleged that he had written a full confession in exchange for his release. Uh, And later on, they dropped the charges on him, but his reputation was so tarnished, it suffered irreparable damage. But nevertheless, Satan continued to push forward his apostolic faith movement. And like others in the holiness movement of that day, and there are people in it to this day, Parham held numerous strange, heretical doctrines. I won't go into some of them that are documented. But among other things, he believed there was physical healing in the atonement. Therefore, sanctification and salvation would would guarantee physical healing. And therefore, he also believed that it would be 
an act of unbelief or a lack of faith to seek medical treatment for physical ailments. But his errant soteriology was perhaps the greatest problem. It was the most virulent poison in all that he taught, and, and, and that was rooted in Wesleyan holiness. Holiness theology, by the way, wrongly asserts that believers can experience a second blessing sometime subsequent to their conversion experience. And, and when that happens, it allows them to attain to a state of, quote, Christian perfection. I've known some of these people and I can assure you, I've not experienced perfection in their character. And some uh, in the 19th century holiness movement, some, some of those leaders even taught a third blessing where uh, they identified the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that, that was the next thing you were to experience, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that in great detail when we come to those passages. But... And then, of course, Pentecostalism subsequently linked um, that with the speaking in tongues. Now, some additional history. Around that same time, there was a free will Baptist preacher and pastor and educator by the name of Essex William Kenyon. And Kenyon was encouraging his followers to use, quote, positive quest confession to speak their desires into existence. He, one of his favorite slogans, slogans was, what I confess, I possess. It was a slogan that, that frankly is still popular today among word of faith preachers. You turn on the television, you'll hear the same type of stuff. Only they will sometimes call it, name it and claim it. You've heard that? Blab it and grab it. You know, all of these types of ridiculous things that, that people believed. And this guy was heavily influenced by the metaphysical cults of the 19th century. In fact, he, Kenyon asserted that people can change their physical circumstances simply by, quote, a positive confession of the word of God. For example, he said this, quote, confession always go goes ahead of healing. Don't watch symptoms, watch the word and be sure that your confession is bold and vigorous. Don't listen to people. He went on to say, it is God speaking. You are healed. The word says you are. Don't listen to the senses. Give the word its place. Of course, this is the same type of heresy that you hear on television all the time. He also taught that the gospel offered material blessing, this side of heaven. Reminds me of, of uh, Joel Osteen, uh, the heretic who believes this stuff, uh, who wrote like, your best, no your best life now bestseller. According to Kenyon, quote, God never planned that we should live in poverty, physical, mental, or spiritual. He made Israel go to the head of the nations financially when we go into partnership with him and we learn his ways of doing business. We cannot be failures, he says. He will give you the ability to make your life a success. It's interesting, by the way, if, if I can go back for a moment I'll just take a minute here. This, this is important. I want to go back to, to something that Parham said that, that I forgot to tell you. He was also, um, he was also caught up in, in a, a, a movement of, um, of um, 
Let me find my note here. Forgive me. He was caught up in this movement that, that if you had the second blessing, missionaries could go out into the world. They wouldn't have to learn languages. And those of you that have had to learn languages would say, oh, my, wouldn't that be wonderful? But unfortunately, that was not the case. Here's what the paper said uh, in Topeka, Kansas, May 20th. Reverend Charles P. Parham of the College of Bethel at Topeka and his followers are preparing to give the people of the churches some new work along the line of missionary endeavor. His plan is to send among the heathen persons who have been blessed with the gift of tongues, a gift which he says no, other have ever, no, no others have ever had conferred upon them since apostolic times. His missionaries, he, as he points out, will have the great advantages of having the languages of the various peoples among whom they work miraculously conferred upon them and will not be put to the trouble of learning them in the laborious way by which they have acquired by other prospective missionaries. And here's what Parham said. There is no doubt that at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues if they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language, which will, of course, be an inestimable advantage. He says, the students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They have been conferred on them miraculously. Different ones who have already been able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt various dialects of the people of India and even in the language of the savages of Africa will be received during our meeting in the same way. I, accept, I expect these gatherings to be the greatest since the days of Pentecost. Well, unfortunately, um, this didn't work out, and they sent out missionaries. It was a colossal um, mistake, and so they began to shift from saying that it was other languages. Instead, it's just your own private language, and that's what you see beginning to happen. Um, but I, I wanted to add that to... To this, to this man's background. I, I might also add, I, I don't have all the documentation, but this man was, had some serious racial issues. He, was, uh, he became a strong proponent of the KKK and, and segregation and all kinds of other issues. And then along the same line, you have this guy, Kenyon, who's coming along and he's telling people, you know, to speak these things and into existence, and this basically spawned the word of faith movement that we see today, and, and, and it, it spawned the various uh, Pentecostal healing revivalists of the 1940s and the 1950s. If you read your history about this, you'll see, uh, you'll hear of men, uh, faith, these faith heal healers like William Branham, and then Oral Roberts comes on the scene. He takes the mantle, and he lays the foundation for the prosperity gospel and this, this deceptive lure that charismatics use to the today. And then it comes, comes along guys like Kenneth Hagin, who was widely known as the father of the, of the Word of Faith movement. And by the way, Hagin even actually plagiarized much of what he wrote from uh, large sections of Kenyon's books. And so you see how all of this works together. And today you've got 
so many of these people out there that have made millions and millions of dollars off of these heresies. Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Jesse Duplantis, Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, um, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, and on and on and on it goes. Dear child of God, be discerning. That's what I want you to hear. Please, please, please be discerning. When you hear of these miraculous signs and wonders and tongues and all of this, you, you want to ask yourself, is this really a work of the Spirit? Or, or is this the work of the flesh? Is this the work of people that are ruled by their emotions? Is, is what I'm seeing biblical? Is what I'm seeing and hearing pointing me to the glory and the majesty of Christ? Does it point me to the Word of God and and, 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 and make me bow before it and, and, and willingly submit to its authority? Does it promote unity and fellowship in the body of Christ? Does it animate my heart to godliness and to holiness? Does it cause me to have an overwhelming sense of just adoring worship, breathless adoring worship of the Lord our God? Does it produce within me a zeal for evangelism? Does it cause me, bottom line, to fear the Lord and to want to serve him? Or is it nothing more than empty enthusiasm? Outbursts of superficial emotion. Religious happenings that are bereft of any biblical substance. That's what you want to ask. So let's be discerning and thank God for the true gift of tongues that did exist in those days and for the closed canon that we have now that the Spirit of God uses to speak to our heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. May they bear much fruit in our hearts. And Lord, I pray for those that are perhaps still caught up in some of these deceptions, that you would move upon them with the reality of the truth that they might be delivered from these things and truly worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. And we'll stand together and sing this Jude doxology I spoke of earlier. Praise God for the miracle of new life, right? Bringing us from the dead spiritually, giving us the gift of spiritual sight. Jesus brought you out of Egypt. Remember, He has sought you as His people. Remember, He has saved you from your
Let's pray together. Father, once again, we give you praise for all that you are, all that you have done, are doing, and will do. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of your indwelling spirit that not only caused us to be born again, but continues to transform us little by little into the image of Christ through the word that he has written. Thank you that you have granted unto us all things pertaining to life and to godliness. And I pray that you will dismiss us now with the magnificent promises of the gospel resonating within our hearts. We thank you. We give you praise for all things. And all God's people said, Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.